0: If you have your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you to open them to Matthew 25. Matthew 25, we're going to look this morning at verses 1 through verse 13. Matthew 25, verses 1 through verse 13 you'll remember the context here in Matthew 25 is that Jesus has been uh, teaching the disciples concerning His second coming. In fact, really everything that he's doing in 24 and 25 is in response to these two questions that the disciples ask, uh, When will these things occur and what will be the sign of your coming? So when will these things occur and what will be Uh, the signs. And really, Jesus has given them a lot of information, but two very clear uh, and simple truths and principles that he's given them is that you can be certain, number one, that I am coming back. That's what he's driven home throughout this. I am coming back. In fact, it's more certain than the sun rising tomorrow. The the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And what is his word that he's been teaching them in this passage? I'm coming back. So he is coming back. But the second thing that he's made abundantly clear to them is that no one knows the day or the hour. Uh, The angels don't know, the son doesn't know, only the father alone. So I am coming back, but you don't know the day or the hour. And the result of that is this message that in light of the fact that you know he's coming back, but you don't know when, always be prepared. In fact, that's what we're going to see. And uh, we saw it already in the latter portion of chapter 24, we see it throughout 25, always be prepared. He gives us five illustrations. We saw three of them last week with Noah and the thief and the faithful servant. This morning, the parable of the 10 bridesmaids. Next week, the parable of the talents. But all of these parables, all of these illustrations drive home one point, always be prepared. If Jesus tells us to do something five times, we need to take note of that. Amen? Always be prepared. That's the message that we see running throughout each of these. We come this morning to this parable of the ten virgins or ten bridesmaids. And you may have asked yourself, you read through this, what in the world's going on here? What is it with these bridesmaids? In fact, the bride's not even mentioned. What's the uh, bridesmaids? What's the deal here? Well, I think in order to understand this parable, you've got to understand something of an ancient uh, Jewish wedding. And I want to make a little disclaimer on the front end. I don't claim to be an expert on ancient Jewish weddings. Um, and what I found out this week is that there's a lot of people who think they're uh, <laughs> uh, experts on ancient Jewish weddings, but none of them really agree. And so, um, uh, but while they don't agree on a lot of the details, they do agree on the main things. So, so let me just give you some of those that I think will help you better understand this parable. Uh, number one, with an ancient Jewish wedding, you'd have a father who would an, uh, arrange a wedding for his son. He would pick a bride. He would choose a bride for his son. And uh, the longer I'm a dad, the more I think, boy, that sounds like a pretty good system. Uh, <laughs> some of you sons are thinking, no way. Um, two of my boys thinking, no way. Uh, but, but the father would choose a bride for his son. Now, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a forced situation, though, because the son still had to concur with the father. And that bride, not just the son, but the bride would have to concur with this situation and her family would have to concur. In fact, a really good picture of this is in Genesis when Abraham sends his servant to select a bride for Isaac. And you'll remember that servant goes off and he encounters Rebekah. And she fits the, the bill of what, what, um, what God's looking for and what God's put upon his heart. And so he goes and talks to her and her family. And uh, her family says, we need a few more days to think about this. And says, nope, it's, sorry, you got to either go or not. I'm leaving. i got to get back. And what does Rebecca say? It's left up to her. She says, I'll go. Without ever having seen Isaac. What is she going off? She's going off the testimony of the servant who's told her about the glory of the Father and the beauty of the Son. Does that sound familiar, actually? Of some people who we've never seen the Son, but on the basis of one of his servants who's told us about the glory of the Father and the Son. Anyway, we're going to get sidetracked. So... There is a father who chooses a bride for his son. Once they concur, they would come together in, in a betrothal period. And most agree that there would be some sort of ceremony that would initiate this relationship. But what you need to know is during that betrothal period, you were as good as married. You were married in every way except one. You didn't live together and you didn't sleep together. But you were, uh, you were bound in that marriage relationship. And that, at that point, in fact, if you broke off a of betrothal, it was considered divorce. Um, and if you were unfaithful during a betrothal period, it was punishable by death, which brings more light to the Joseph and Mary situation, doesn't it? Uh, But you'd enter into this b- betrothal period, and, and what the son would do, what the, what the groom would do during this betrothal period is he'd go away to prepare a place. He, what, what his job was to do was to prepare not just a house, but a home. A place where that bride could be brought into and she would be protected and and she would be safe and she'd be provided for. She wouldn't have any worries. So that was his job to prepare a place. The bride's job was to make herself ready, she was to keep herself pure she was to remain faithful awaiting his return. And while she might know the general time of his return, she didn't know exactly when. But as the day would draw closer, her and her bridesmaids, those who were her closest friends, they would go out to meet the groom and, and they would take lamps or torches with them because the groom more often than not would come during the night. And when he came, they wanted to be prepared. They wanted to be ready. And, and they would come together and there'd be this huge parade and there'd be this huge shell Celebration. There'd be this huge feast and all of the wealth of the father would overflow to that bridal party. It would be a wonderful time of rejoicing and celebration. And that story should sound familiar, as I just mentioned earlier, because uh, we all know of a father, God the Father, who chose a bride for himself, that uh, he chose us. But we had to concur, didn't we? We had to accept him. We had to place our faith in him. We trusted in him. Though we've not seen him, we love him and are filled with a joy, inexpressible and full of glory, Peter says. We love him. We trusted in him. And what is he doing now? He's gone away. And what is he doing? He's preparing a place. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go away to prepare a place for you. He's preparing a place of security. A place of complete provision and total perfection, absent of all sin. And what are we to be doing as the bride of Christ? We're making ourselves ready. We're remaining faithful, faithful to him, faithful to his mission. Because we know one day he's coming back. And we don't know when, so we're always prepared. And when he comes back, what a day that will be. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first and then we who are alive together and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds and we'll meet the Lord in the air so we will always be with the Lord. What a day that's going to be. And what will happen then? Oh, there's going to be a feast the likes of which we've never known before. Incredible rejoicing! But that's really the application for you and I as believers. Now, I tend to believe with a lot of scholars that Matthew is speaking directly to a Jewish audience who will probably endure. He's speaking to a Jewish audience that will endure the tribulation, and he's calling them to be faithful as Christ will ultimately come at the end of the tribulation. But the application for us as the church, as the bride of Christ, is that the groom has gone away, and we know the next event of human history is that Christ is going to come back for his church. And what we are doing is we, as the bride of Christ, are making ourselves ready. So with that picture in mind, let's read the parable, because I think we need to read it all together, and then we'll, we'll pray and, and we'll look together at it. Look with me at verse one. It says, the kingdom of heaven will be compared to 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five of them were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight, there was a shout. Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, no, there'll not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast and the door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Father, we ask you to bless the study of your word this morning. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work and move today. Speak through the word of God, Holy Spirit. Speak into our hearts, change us, mold us, correct us, discipline us, draw us to Jesus. We need you this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So really in this parable, uh, we see these 10 uh, bridesmaids. And uh, so 10 virgins, 10 bridesmaids. But we know at the end of the story, only five of them are going to get to meet the groom. Only five of them are going to go into the wedding feast. And they're a lot alike. All 10 of these bridesmaids, they're all alike in a lot of ways. So I want to focus in on the ways that they're all similar first. Number one, they all want to see the bridegroom. That's apparent. They all want to see the bridegroom. They they all identify as part of the bridal party. Um, They all have lamps. So they look the part. They all look the part. They all want to see the, the bridegroom. They all want to go to the party. They all want to go to the feast. I mean, who doesn't want free food? Who doesn't want a great party and, and a lot of fun and a lot of food? So, so they're all part of the group. And, and in other words, we, we would say they all claim to be Christians. They all look the part. They, they all want to go to the feast of heaven. They all long for the coming of Christ. So they, they all have the same kind of external appearance. They all have a, a claim that we want to see the bridegroom. They look the part. But we know that not all of them are going to get to be with the groom. Not all of them are going to go into the wedding feast. So the question is, what is the issue? Well, some read the passage and say, well, they all fell asleep. And it is true that this is another similarity. They all fell asleep. You see it in verse 5. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. And there's some commentators that would suggest that their sleeping indicates negligence on their part. Um, But it doesn't appear on first reading, as you look at this, that Christ disapproved of their falling asleep. It's not like when when Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane with the disciples and said, stay alert and stay awake. And it was apparent when he came back and they were sleeping. He said, guys, could you not stay awake for an hour? That that doesn't seem to be the case here. It's not as though he disapproves. It it almost appears as if it was just natural occurrence, that it got night and and they got drowsy and they all fell asleep. And and if sleep was the real issue, then none of them would have got in. Because they all sleep both the, both the wise and and the foolish, they both sleep, so that 's not the issue they 're both I think the picture here is that they 're both just going about the natural. Uh, occurrences of life Uh, I think it's similar to chapter 24 verses in 40 and 41 you remember when he says there's two men working in a field one was taken one was left there's two women grinding at the mill one was taken one was left the picture there is that they were all going about just their normal activities and occurrences of life and the the return of the groom or the return of Christ was sudden it was unexpected and uh, I want to be careful here because I don't don't want to take this too far Uh, because I think that's one of the dangers of parables that you get caught up in the details, you miss the main point. But I I do think it's important to note here that this indicates to us that, that being prepared for Christ's return doesn't mean that we suspend all activities of our life and just start staring at the sky waiting for Christ to return. It doesn't mean that we all of a sudden all become spiritual air raid wardens. You know, We're all just sitting around hands uh, uh, on the other side, just looking up at the sky. It also doesn't mean that we sit around just debating the times all the time and and debating dates and trying to put it all on a calendar. No, being prepared doesn't mean that we neglect the normal and natural occurrences of our life. It doesn't mean that we don't plan. It doesn't mean that we still don't make plans, but it does mean that in all of our planning and all of our activities and all the normal occurrences of our life, we have a spirit of anticipation and preparation for Christ's return. Uh, That we're longing for his return. The scripture says when it comes to longing for Christ, it uses the word hastening Christ's return. I love that word, hastening. It's a longing, it's an anticipation. That's to be our spirit. I remember uh, when Faith and I were getting married that week prior, listen to me, I was hastening Saturday. I couldn't wait. That clock couldn't move fast enough. But I didn't, I couldn't just sit around and do nothing. I had work to do. There were things that needed to be done, plans that needed to be made. But listen to me. Know this today. In all those things I was doing, in the back of my mind, what was I thinking about? Saturday's coming. That's going to be a good day. That's us. We're hastening Christ's return, but we have work to do, things to be done. It doesn't mean we suspend all activities. It's similar in, in Psalm 27. You remember one of my favorite Psalms, David, in Psalm 27, says, One thing I've asked the Lord, and I shall continually seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and meditate in his temple. David says, I want to stay in the temple all day long. It's so much fun being with God's people in God's house. I just want to stay there all the time. But could David stay in the temple all day long? No, no. He had to judge the people. He had to lead the people. He had to lead the military. He had work to do. But what he was saying is not, I wanna, I got to stay in the temple. He's saying, I want in all my activity, in everything I do, I want to have a spirit of worship. That's us. Not suspending all of our activities, but having a spirit of anticipation waiting for the Lord to return. So I already went further than I intended to, but you see the picture there. So we see a group of people, they all all want to go to the feast. They all look the part. They all want to be with the bridegroom. They all fall asleep. They're all going through the natural occurrences of life. And we also see here that when the groom arrives, they all woke up. When the groom arrives, they all woke up. And in that moment, when the groom finally comes, they all realize in that moment, they realize this is serious. And in that moment, all of a sudden, they're all of them, they're all willing to do whatever it takes to go in and be with the groom and join that wedding feast. Now, as we're going to see, not all of them had the same level of preparation. Not all of them had the same level of commitment. But when the groom arrived, they all understood that being with the groom is the most important thing. In fact, what do they do? They all of a sudden say, Hey, you guys over there, can I borrow some of your oil? And what do the prudents say? No, we can't give you oil. We give you oil, then we're all going to be in the dark. Not possible. And there's another little little point here that I think is worth making. When Christ returns, you can't borrow from somebody else's faith. You're not getting in because your mama was a Christian. You're not getting in because your wife was a really strong believer. You're going to be accountable for your faith. No borrowing faith from somebody else. We're judged individually. But the greater point here is, is that when the groom arrives, they all understand, hey, it's of supreme value to be with the groom, but at that point, it's too late, And I said this last week, in that moment, the difference between going in with the groom and being part of the wedding party is not what you do in the moment that he returns, but what did you do in advance to prepare for his coming? Uh, It's similar to Noah and the flood uh, that Jesus used the illustration in chapter 24. When the rain started coming, like it came this morning, when that rain started coming and the flood waters started rising, listen, in that moment, everybody wanted to be on the boat. In that moment, all of a sudden, they decided, hey, this Noah guy ain't so funny anymore. He was telling the truth. And hey, now, now, now we want to get on board. Now we want to be on the ark. But at that moment, God had shut the door and it was too late. And if you read the story clearly enough, you'll see That Noah and his family got on the ark seven days in advance. They knew that God's word was true. And so we're going to prepare in advance of this judgment that's coming. And you need to know today. When Christ returns, there'll be no doubt about who he is. Nobody going to be doubting the deity of Christ in that moment. When Christ returns, no one's going to doubt his deity. Nobody's going to doubt the truthfulness of his word. Nobody's going to be mocking him. Nobody's going to laugh and listen. In that moment, they're all going to realize the most supreme, important thing in life right now is to be with Jesus. And scripture tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But only those who have bent the knee in advance will know his salvation. In that moment, it will be too late. So you have two groups of people, uh, but a lot of similarities. All, All of them identify as part of the bridal party. They all look the part. They all have a claim. They all have an appearance. They all won't go to heaven. They all fall asleep. They're all just going about the natural occurrences of their life. And they all recognize when Christ returns... The supreme importance and value of being with him. But only five of them are going to make it in. Only five are going to be with the groom. Only five go into the feast. So the question is, what makes the difference? What is the difference maker? What is the difference between going in and being with the groom and part of the wedding feast and him saying to you, I do not know you? Well, the key to the entire parable, I believe, occurs in verses 2 through 4. Look at what it says in 2 through 4. Five of them were foolish. Five of them were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil and and flasks along with their lamps. This is the key. As far as I can tell, there is only one difference between the, the foolish and the prudent. The only difference. And it makes all the difference in the world. The only difference was... One group brought additional oil and one didn't. Now, what does that mean? Let me give you at least three things that that means. Number one, it means that there was a seriousness to their commitment. There was a seriousness to their commitment. This five, the, the, the five that got in, the five that brought additional oil, they had put another level of thought into, ta- into what it's going to take to meet that groom and be part of the party. party. It, was a, it was a serious commitment that we're going to do whatever it takes in advance To ensure that we don't miss out on that moment. In other words, this was not a flippant decision. This was not a spur-of-the-moment decision. It was a serious commitment. Not only was it serious, it was a supreme commitment, and it was demonstrated by the decisions that they made in preparation for his coming. And there's an important lesson for us here. Listen to me this morning. Following Jesus is not just some Flippant decision that you fit into your schedule when it's convenient for you. Following Jesus is not just some other hobby that you add into your life with a whole bunch of other hobbies that you got going on. And it's not even just about going to heaven. And sometimes that's the way it's presented. Well, if you, do you want to go to heaven or you want to go to hell? Well, who's going to sign up for hell? I mean, let's just be honest. That's the problem. They all want to go to the party. They all want to go to heaven. But listen, following Jesus is not just an insurance policy against hell. No, it's the supreme commitment of our lives, realizing who we are and who he is. Listen to me, when you realize, like I do, that I am a sinner... And I cannot save myself, and I'm dead in my transgressions and sin, and I can do nothing on my own to change that situation. But God so loved me that he sent his son to die in my place to bear the punishment for my sin, and he has created a way unto salvation for me so that by faith, by simply believing him, I can have a way to God and be with him forever. When you realize that, it's not enough just to tip the hat and say thank you and then go on your way. No, when you realize who he is and what he's done, you will like Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, when he says, I urge you, brethren, in light of the mercies of God, you offer your bodies as living sacrifices. You hold nothing back. It's Paul in Philippians chapter 3 who just said the deepest desire of my life is just to know Jesus. And in light of who he is, everything else in my life is rubbish. rubbish. Which leads me to another point that's, that's critical about these, these bridesmaids that brought additional oil. Not only was it a serious commitment, but it was a sacrificial commitment. It was a sacrificial commitment. Oil in that culture, oil wasn't cheap. To bring additional oil meant that they were so committed to making sure that, that, that nothing stood in their way of, of greeting the groom and being in that party. That they were willing to sacrifice to get it that the prospect of being with him and joining the feast was so valuable to them that they were willing to sacrifice whatever it took to be a part of that feast. And listen to me. Following Jesus is sacrificial. And following Jesus is in no way self-indulgent Uh, We have made Christianity in a lot of ways. We've made Christianity self indulgent. We've appealed to men and women on the basis of what Christ can do for them and all the benefits that Christ can do for you. And surely we who know Christ know that there are many benefits, but that's not the way Christ ever presented it. It Drives me crazy. So many pastors out there, their sermon series are just self helps. It's 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 five ways to get a date by Friday. Six ways to get a better job. It's all just about trying to get Jesus to work your side of the street. And that's not the way that Christ ever presented it I wish we had more time to go into this, but what Christ makes clear here and in so many other places is that while you might be interested in Christ because he can heal your illness, and while you you might be interested in Christ because he can help your vocational life, and while you might be interested in Christ because you think he can help your marriage, listen to me, unless you are willing to take up your cross and follow him, you will not meet the groom and you're not going to be a part of this party. And those aren't my words, those are the words of Christ. That's what he said. So these brides who brought an additional amount of oil, they make a serious commitment. They make a sacrificial commitment because they know in advance that being with him is of supreme value. But thirdly and most importantly, they endure to the end. They endure to the end. Now one group I can just picture it. They heard about the party. They heard about the wedding feast. Sign me up. Free food. Good time. Think I want some of that. But they didn't count the cost. And they didn't make preparation. So when there was a delay and things got difficult, their lamps went out. In other words, they weren't in it for the long haul and when things got tough and there was a delay, the lamp went out and the implication is clear. The kingdom of heaven does not belong to those who simply make a confession, although it involves a confession, it it doesn't belong to those who simply make a confession. The kingdom of heaven doesn't belong to those who simply walked an aisle and got dunked in a pool. The kingdom of heaven doesn't belong to those who simply prayed a prayer or joined a church. It doesn't belong to to those who simply went through a confirmation class. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those who counted the cost, made a serious commitment to Christ, and therefore they endure and persevere to the end. And oh, how I've prayed this week that I would be clear in this message because I don't want to confuse anybody. And some of you are thinking right now, it sounds like, Pastor, you're preaching a works-based salvation, that it's all about you just gritting your teeth and somehow persevering and making it through. That's not at all what I'm preaching. Don't mishear me this morning. Salvation is a work of God from beginning to end. But what I am saying is that those who truly trust in Christ, who truly are reborn through faith in Him, they will persevere and carry on to the end not because they're good but because God is good and what God starts he always finishes. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 my life verse he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Who began the work of salvation? God. Who carries it on? God. Who's going to complete it? God. God, as salvation is God's work from beginning to end. So I'm not saying this is a works-based salvation. But what I am saying is that if you truly trust in Christ, if you truly know him and you've been born again by the Spirit of God, he will carry you on. You will endure. You will persevere, which brings us, which really gives us the primary indicator of whether or not I truly know him the true indicator of whether or not I'll truly be with him when he returns is not what I did 10 years ago. But am I currently today walking in faithfulness and persevering with him? So many people, they're they're relying upon a prayer that they prayed years ago that made no real difference in their life. They're relying upon a baptism they can't even remember and has made no real impact on them. And what Christ is indicating and Scripture makes clear is that assurance of salvation is indicated in our faithfulness to him today. I'm not saying that your faithfulness achieves salvation, but I am telling you your faithfulness is an indicator that you truly know him and he is yours and you are his. Doesn't mean that we're perfect. It doesn't mean that occasionally we don't get off the path. But when we do, what happens? There's something called the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And God rebukes us and disciplines us. And he pulls us back really quick, doesn't he? Some people ask, well, how far can you drift away and still be a Christian? Folks, that's the wrong question to be asking. It'd be like me saying to my wife, how far can I go and still be faithful to you? Folks, if I love my wife, I don't even want to get close. I don't even want to do anything that would give the appearance of unfaithfulness. That should be our heart towards Christ. You know, um, I, I've been, I just finished a book, and I, I would recommend it to you. It's a book called The Insanity of God by Nick Ripken. If you've not read it, you need to read it. It will change your life. It will change your perspective on the church for sure. In this book, he tells these amazing stories of the persecuted church. He was a missionary. He interviewed a lot of pastors and Christians around the world. And in one part of this book, he's interviewing uh, pastors of house churches in China uh, under intense persecution. And there he's setting up interviews with these pastors. And one of the young house church pastors, he signs up. He makes an appointment for an interview. He puts his name on the list. I want to be interviewed. And some of the older church pastors... They grab Nick and they pull him to the side and said, hey, that guy that just signed up, he shows a lot of promise and and we like him, but we don't trust anything he says yet because he's not been to prison. You hear that? They're saying, he's made a claim, looks the part, like the guy, but we're not sure if he's one of us because he's not yet faced any real difficulty. And implied in that statement is what? Sooner or later, he's going to go to prison if he's one of us. If he really knows Jesus, he's going to get away from it. And then we're going to find out. Time will tell. See, faithfulness and continued endurance is the indicator that I truly know Jesus. I see so many people that come to faith in Christ. and I'll have people ask me, do you think they made a genuine commitment? You know what I always say? Give it time. It's the continued endurance that gives us the assurance that we truly are his. So maybe you're here this morning or you're listening online or, or you're listening on the radio or you're watching the live stream. And if I asked you, a, asked you today, are you a Christian? You would say, yeah, I'm a Christian. But you're currently living in immorality. You're living in sin. You are unrepentant. Your lamp has gone out because you failed to count the cost And I cannot be certain as to your salvation. That's between you and God. But what I can tell you is that Scripture gives you no assurance of salvation. The New Testament knows nothing of a professing Christian who is not displaying the qualities of Christ in continued obedience and faithfulness. And boy, as I prayed about this message this week, it sounds harsh. I don't know about you, but as I read this parable, it was, it's hard to hear because you think these, these, these bridesmaids, they just want to go back in the city and get some more oil. You're thinking, what's the deal? Why can't he just wait a little bit? I mean, what's a, what's a, what's a couple of hours? Boy, when that door is shut, I don't know you, it, And listen, there are a lot of people out there that think, well, one day I'm going to stand before God. But man, he's a gracious, loving God. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And I think I'll skate in. I mean, goodness, he loves us. And I know, listen, God is is loving and he is gracious, but he's also just. And he is holy and he can't overlook sin. And it's not as though he hadn't warned us. That's the whole point. Christ here is warning us. That's why he says it five times. Because he knows. A, a grammar teacher would have counted off for redundancy. Said it's too redundant. But Jesus knows. You guys got to hear it five times. And he uses harsh language. I said this a few weeks ago. But if, a, if, a, if your little son or daughter's running out into a busy street, your, 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 your granddaughter, grandson... There's a busy street, and they're running right in that street. Do you stop and say, uh, grandson, I don't want to bother you or hurt your feelings, but if you could please come back over this way? No, what do you do? You say, get out of the street!" <laughs> and you don't care if they, you hurt their feelings or not. Why? Because you know that path leads to destruction. And Jesus is speaking to all of us today, shaking us up with the truth of his word, confronting us with the truth and saying, listen, one day I'm coming back. See, that's the thing. Either Christ is going to come back or you're going to die. And in that moment, the door is shut. There is finality to that. There's no second chances. There's no mulligans. There's no do-over, no reincarnation, no purgatory. In that moment, the door is shut. That's it. You can't go back. And so the question is, are you prepared today? It's been appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. Man, this is why it breaks my heart when you see people that claim to know Christ and then they just walk off in unfaithfulness. And you know the thought that goes through my mind? Do you not fear God? You're going to stand before him, and all those things that are hidden, they're going to be revealed. No hiding from God. You ever been (laughs) driving down the road, and you see those flashing lights in the rearview mirror? Not that it's ever occurred to me, but um, maybe some of y'all sinners (laughs) have had it happen to you, but... What happens when those lights? You see those lights in the rearview mirror. The heart, oh no, I'm in trouble, and I've done it now. Listen, if that's the way we feel when some lights start flashing in our rearview mirror, what do you think you're going to feel when the Son of Man descends from the clouds and you stand before Him? No second chances. That's why He says to all of us, "Why would you? Why would you take a chance?" And you really got one of three options this morning. If you're confronted with the truth, if you know you truly don't know him, if you're walking in immorality and sin, you got one of three choices. You can correct it. You can fake it. That's what a lot of people do. Just put on a mask. That's why Jesus hates hypocrisy. There's so many Christians. They know they're not where they're, but they're fooling a lot of people on Sunday morning because they wear a nice suit and coat, and they put on a bright, smiley face, and then they're living something completely differently during the week, they're just trying to cover over it. They're faking it. A lot of people, they just chuck it. They know what they should do, but they don't really care. They're going to do whatever they want to do. If you're being confronted with the reality of who you are and who Christ is today, I'm challenging you. Don't you dare walk away and be a forgetful here. Be an obedient doer. You change it today. You can. And Christ is not there waiting to discipline you and beat you down. You know what he's doing like the father and the prodigal son? He's standing with arms wide open. You have nothing to gain but forgiveness. You have nothing to gain today but freedom. Why would you put that off? Are you ready? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word that's so plain, so clear. God, you've not left us to really wonder about the meaning of this parable. You've made it so plain. You need to be prepared because I'm coming back or you're going to die. And God, I pray that if there's anybody here, they've been trusting in a church membership. They've been trusting in their good works. They've been trusting in a prayer they prayed years ago or some other religious act. Maybe they've been trusting in the faith of their parents or the faith of their brother, the faith of a sister, the faith of of a spouse. Lord, I pray today they would know that there's only one way to salvation, and that's to trust in you, to repent of their sins, to turn from trusting in themselves, to turn from their sin, and to turn to you in in faith, trusting in you and you alone for salvation. I pray your kindness, Lord, would lead them to repentance. God, I pray that all of us this morning would examine ourselves. That's what your word says. We need to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. I pray that we constantly be examining our hearts, always being prepared, for we don't know the day or the hour. We pray this all in Christ's name, amen. I want to invite you to stand with me as we give you an opportunity to respond in whatever way God might be leading on your heart. Maybe you have questions about salvation, how you can know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. We'll have pastors here at the front. Maybe you just want to pray. This is your time this morning. Know this, you'll never regret obeying Jesus. So you respond as we sing.